This episode of the Commercial Real Estate Investor Podcast is brought to you by Hamilton, a value-add investment and development firm in Nashville, Tennessee, focused on bringing passive real estate investment opportunities directly to your inbox. Visit www.investwithhamilton.com invest to sign up for upcoming investment opportunities. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Investor Podcast. Excited to be getting back with you all today. It has been fun being back on the YouTube and podcasting train. Uh, we've actually got some more educational style videos coming out starting next week. So keep an eye out for those. We've got, you're not going to believe this because it took us forever to do it. And I also haven't been posting since like September, but we've got about 70 videos that are lined up uh, that will be dripping out every week uh, along with these live streams, which is really exciting for us because I have had to spend a lot of time getting those ready for you all. But I know that everybody loves having those. Uh, Quick updates. So today we sent out an investor survey to all of those of you that are on our LP investor list. Uh, if you have a chance, please take that. We're just trying to see how much capital our limited partners are looking to invest into commercial real estate this year so that we can kind of pre-plan uh, how many raises we're going to do. We're looking for a couple of projects, probably in the $2 million to $4 million range total, uh, likely in East Nashville or Madison, but we're also considering Chattanooga and the Southeast if it is a triple net investment where we can uh, add some value to it. So uh, if you didn't get that, go to uh, investwithhamilton.com slash invest uh, and sign up for it. We'll get that over to you and uh, get, get that underway. Today is Valentine's Day, February 14th. So I figured we'd have a fun themed episode of the podcast going into love it or leave it. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we did our Urban Land Institute Emerging Trends of 2023. I wanted to talk today about the asset classes uh, and types that I think in 2023 are going to perform well or not. Uh, let me know which commercial real estate assets you're looking to acquire in 2023 as we go along. It'll be very interesting to hear um, everybody else's perspectives. Starting off, we're going to go into office space. That is actually going to be on my leave it uh, in my leave it section, um, for, for this episode, you know, I like office space. Um, I really do, but I think that in 2023, it's going to be changing a lot. And unless you know how to handle the shifting atmosphere around office space, it's probably not going to make a great investment. Now this one, just like every single other asset type on this list, uh, will have some caveats, right? I mean, if you look at uh, office space in Nashville compared to office space in San Francisco, I love Nashville. I would leave San Francisco. Uh, if you're looking at Class A downtown Nashville or you know Class B uh, in the you know urban core adjacent right outside of downtown Nashville, I love that. I would leave downtown. So uh, there are going to be some of these uh, these types where I think you know what it really just depends on the situation. But we're going to give just an overview. Uh, for that particular class. So office, I would leave it. I think uh, co-working is exciting. Micro office space is exciting. But your traditional office space needs a lot of work. And it's going to take a lot of innovation um, in order to get that market right. I do think it's going to happen. I do think office is not going anywhere. But that's just my feeling for 2023. Let's get into retail. What do I think about retail? I love it. I think that uh, retail is here to stay. It's a great investment, whether you're buying it for retail or buying it to repurpose it. Uh, whether you're buying a single tenant net lease or a vacant shopping center, you have so many possibilities um, and directions that you can take with that asset class. 
Uh, to me, it's very flexible. They're in great locations. Uh, typically, you've got pretty good visibility. So think about all of the other uses that would actually like a shopping center or a retail building like that. You could go for a service-based business. You could do office space. Uh, if it, This is, of course, if you can't find a traditional retailer. But you could also do industrial. I mean, think about what a shopping center is. It's basically a very well-lit and conditioned warehouse. They typically have docks in the back, so it's very easy for them to load in and load out a lot of material. I like retail going into this market. I know that we've had e-commerce, the rise of e-commerce over the last 10 years that has really hit a lot of retailers, but more of your mom and pop local shops that actually have something unique to offer instead of these big box retailers that are you know, getting crushed by Amazon, uh, they are still very, um, they're still very much a part of the community in which they're in. So I think that retail uh, is, is definitely on the top of my list. That's what we're looking to acquire more of this year. Um, I do have a fair amount of office space, but we have more retail. The majority, probably 60, 70% of our portfolio is actually retail. Actually, maybe even higher than that. Let's get into industrial. Uh, industrial is absolutely on the love it side. Uh, industrial in the past few years has just been doing exceptionally well. Of course, that depends on where you are in the market, right? If you look at what has been developed, though, over the last 10 years, a lot of these industrial developers are catering more towards the larger you know, logistics and distribution facilities, which leaves a massive, absolutely massive gap in the market for the amount of flex space that has been delivered. I was having this conversation with my brokers before I came over here. I said, go find us some land to build some flex space on. I think any amount of flex space that you can build, especially if it's you know 1,000 square feet of office with 2,000 square feet of warehouse, I think it will lease up before you deliver it. There is so much demand out there for that that is not getting filled because there's not enough product. A lot of it's getting torn down to build something that's a higher and better use. And it's all the other developers are focusing on other things. Let's see. Pirate is saying Amazon is taking up to 60% of the cost to sell a product. A lot of sellers are leaving the platform. I can see retailers moving back to brick and mortar. I agree with you. I mean, a lot of these retailers, you know, when, when Amazon first came out, they were the biggest platform. They were the platform. Right. But now a lot of these other companies have figured out how they can actually sell direct to their consumers a lot easier without going through Amazon. And it takes a significant amount of their cost down. So, you know, keep an eye out. I mean, many of these retailers will actually offer discounts for you shopping in store or they'll offer discounts for you buying online directly through them because they don't have to mark it up more. Let's see. Oh, no, the FBI's in here. <laughs> What, what's your thoughts on buying a commercial property, holding it for 10 years, then using it for a 1031 exchange for a personal property while the rest is allocated into Morgan Stanley stock portfolio? Uh, that's a great question. I would have to consult with my CPA on if that's even possible to do, because I'm pretty sure that you can't 1031 exchange into a personal residence. Um, I know that you couldn't sell your personal residence and then 1031 that into an investment. Um, so you may want to just consult with your um, CPA um, or your attorney on that, um, or a qualified intermediary or QI if you have one. I get very weary when I when it comes to 1031 advice because there is a lot to it, uh, and I don't like messing around with uh, with the IRS, and uh, I, don't, I don't think anybody would. But I mean, look, overall, that strategy is a very great wealth building strategy. 
holding a property for 10 years, doing a 1031 exchange, moving it into something else. You know, I think that it's a, it's a pretty great move. All right, let's move into multifamily. Multifamily is 100% still on my leave it list. Drop it. It's probably not worth investing in unless you're developing it yourself. And even that, I mean, the costs are very high. You know, we're, we're working with a bunch of, of national apartment developers, and they can't even make a lot of the numbers work on some of the projects that we were working on them with, you know, or working with them on. Um, it's, it's incredibly expensive to build right now. And even though rental rates are rising, they're just not quite to where they need to be with where interest rates are too, and costs to make the numbers make sense. I think that, you know, it's really interesting. If you look at the history of multifamily, I mean, before 2008, 2010, Apartment syndications were not at nearly as popular as they became in the 2010s. Uh, they became huge because you know some laws and regulations changed around how you can actually syndicate these apartment complexes, which got far more people into it. And while that's a good thing because a lot of apartment complexes are now nicer, it's a bad thing for value-add investors because there's just not really that much meat that is remaining on the bone. I still think, you know, if you can get your hands on a five plex, a 10 plex, these smaller units, you know, if you're willing to deal with the property management, those can be good investments if you find the right seller. But the cap rates that I have seen on these assets, they just don't make sense. You know, I, I was I was pitched a five plex here in East Nashville that I really wanted to buy uh, just because that, you know, it's in a great location. It will always be a good hold. But at the end of the day, you know, they wanted a 6% cap rate when interest rates are at 6.5%. And to me, it just doesn't make any sense. And I'm not a multifamily guy. I mean, I probably could have figured it out um, some other way using some different type of loan, but they wanted, you know, 700000 for it. And it just, uh, I couldn't make those numbers work. And, and that's, that's the story of a lot of multifamily. I mean, with as much capital has gone into that sector of the industry, it's compressed these cap rates down to where the returns are just almost non-existent. It makes it really, really tough to make multifamily a decent investment and get good returns on it. So I put that in, in the leave it pile. Cohen saying, I'm 19 and want to get into commercial syndication ASAP. What should the next two to three years look like for me? Cohen, that's a great question. I get asked all the time, like, how can I get into commercial real estate? And man, the, the best way, in my opinion, is to go find somebody in your market or in a market that you want to be working in and apprentice under them, right? I think that as a society, we've moved way too far away from, you know, quote unquote, apprenticeships. And it is a phenomenal way to just go learn under somebody. Look, yeah, maybe you're making 40K for your first two or three years, but you, the knowledge that you will gain is absolutely invaluable. You'll see how it gets put together. I mean, when I first started in the industry. Gosh, it's coming up on 10 years, which is crazy to think because I'm not that old. Um, 10 years ago, I got a job as a commercial real estate broker. I mean, it was commission only. I didn't have any, I didn't have a salary. I didn't have anything, uh, which, which, you know, I've always enjoyed. I've always been in sales. So I got right to it, got to work. But, you know, my first two years in brokerage, I only made $40,000 each year. Right. I think I looked at my tax return like the second year was like 40,500. I was like, what in the hell am I doing with my life? But third year, it took off and I tripled my income, made six figures for the first time that year. And like when I was 23 and I'm not saying that's a brag. I'm just saying, like, if you if you get into it, you commit and you follow the process, 
it will reward you. It just takes the work. You've got to put the work in. Um, you know, I worked for a boutique development firm, so I got to sit in on all of the development meetings every week for two, three years before I put together my first development deal because I learned by just watching them do it. I didn't get paid to do that. I was a broker, right? I mean, I had to also go out and, and lease and sell commercial space. Um, but it was the best thing that I ever did because, you know, look at me now. I mean, now we get to do these really fun projects, and, and I've got a great team that helps me do it all, um, which is a lot of fun. So I would say just go find somebody that is doing what you want to do and find a way to just take them coffee, you know, be that person that's, that's there to help them catch whatever they need um, on the back end because that, that experience uh, is absolutely invaluable. That's for sure. All right, let's see here. Brandon Armstrong, what are your thoughts on developing plazas to house general medical like dentists, clinics, et cetera? I think it's a great idea, right? Um, you know, not only are medical tenants, uh, which is actually on the list, we'll get to that here in a minute. Not only are medical tenants a great tenant base because they have very strong credit and they don't like to move, but they can pay relatively high rents, right? They can justify it. But biggest thing is they never move, right? And so if you create this central plaza where you have all of these, you know, dentists, a chiropractor, you've got, you know, whatever family doctors, anything, you name it, they're all there. It makes it very easy for them to say, yeah, I want to be on board with this because, you know, maybe the mom's going to be bringing her kid to the dentist and I'm going to pick up on that business as a chiropractor and, you know, they'll come to me as a family practitioner. It makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of synergy there. That's actually why you'll see a lot of medical, uh, medical tenants group together within office buildings, medical office buildings, um, so that they can, you know, really play off of each other's clients, right? Because they're not necessarily competitive. Let's see. Pirate saying, and rent control is spreading across the U.S. They won't ever rent control industrial office or retail. Yeah, I mean, you know, commercial real estate is you don't have to deal with nearly any of the issues that you do in multifamily. I mean, multifamily, gosh, I couldn't even imagine having to like, that's the one that's one of the biggest things, honestly, that has kept me out of multifamily. Like, could I make these could I raise capital for it and make these deals work? Yes, because a lot of people are willing to take a six percent or eight percent return on their cash just to get into apartments. That's not exciting to me, but there are a lot of people that will invest in that. The biggest thing for me is like, I don't want to deal with people's homes, right? It's, it's, you know, maybe it's a moral thing or, you know, whatever, but I, I don't ever want to have to evict somebody. You know, I get that they're in the wrong, right? But I don't feel bad evicting a business. Like this is a business. You are supposed to be doing this to make money, to pay me money, to be in these spaces. And, you know, I'm trusting that you're going to go do that. That's why I'm giving you my space. Um, to me, I know it's I know it's the same principle on the residential side, but it's just it's somebody's home. I don't really want to deal with that. FBI thoughts on industrial real estate. I feel like that's the one market I've never seen go bad. Commercial had its moments, as did residential, but has there ever been a downfall in industrial? Uh, actually, there was a downfall in industrial when we had the, um, gosh, when when uh, what was it the Atlanta, the Atlantic trade. Um, uh, bill passed and, and, and we started exporting a lot of our industrial out to China, Mexico, some of these other countries. Uh, that actually caused a pretty huge crash in the industrial market. That's why you'll still, still see to this day mills, warehouses, stuff like that, where there, that used to be these massive manufacturing facilities that are still vacant. Um, but I will say, yes, they're, they're far more steady than most others. 
Uh, I would say be very careful getting into industrial real estate uh, in terms of the price point. What I have started to see over the last 10 years is a significant rise in rents. And there's only so much that industrial tenants can pay. And now I know that that's a factor of how expensive it is in the demand. But, you know, traditionally, historically, industrial real estate is not that expensive. And now we're seeing rates competitive with, with retail. Could there be a point where industrial rates actually surpass retail rates? I think that that's possible. And it's a really interesting thing to think about. What if industrial becomes more expensive than retail real estate because everybody's focusing more on delivery and logistics? Uh, it's, it's certainly a possibility. It's very interesting to think about and, and see you know, where that could head. I love industrial. You know, it, Typically, it's, it's not the highest and best use for a property. So a lot of your competitive properties where your tenants would potentially be looking to lease are getting torn down. They're just not in the market. They're not in the market anymore. Cohen is asking, can I be that person for you? <laughs> That's great, man. I love, uh, I love the, the verve to get in here uh, on the podcast and ask that. Um, but, man, DM me on, uh, on Instagram. Um, it's right there on that side at Commercial in Nashville. And uh, let's talk. I'm always open to, to talking to hustlers. All right. Let's get into our final main category, which is hospitality. That is your hotels, motels, Airbnb. Um, this may surprise a lot of you, depending on which side of the pandemic you've been on, but I love it. I think that hotels, I think there's a massive opportunity in the hotel industry, uh, especially if you're buying in the right areas, right? Again, getting back to our caveats, I don't think Chicago is a great area to be buying a hotel right now. I don't think that California or New York is probably the best place to be buying a hotel. However, you're buying in the Sun Belt, right? That's, you know, all the way from Arizona, New Mexico to Georgia and Florida and anywhere in between. I think that those are great. You've got a lot of people that are wanting to get out and go on vacations. And those are typically where they're going to go, those areas, those warmer climates. So, you know, I think that they're very interesting. Denver's pretty cool, right? I mean, I think of uh, when, it, when it comes to hospitality, what are the cool destinations that are going to be kind of, you know, that are going to draw people without me having to worry about it too much? So, you know, fortunately, Nashville is one of those. That's why we're building a hotel right now. That's why we're under, uh, under contract on a second hotel. I just think it's very interesting. And, you know, a lot of people uh, back when the pandemic hit, you know, you saw hotels get crushed. That is the one thing that you really have to watch out for when it comes to investing in commercial real estate is, or, or hospitality specifically, is, you know, if you get a down economy or another pandemic happens, you could lose 100% of your tenants. I mean, I talked to hotel guys that were like, yeah, we went from, you know, almost full occupancy to zero, like literally zero people coming to the hotel. And we had to figure out what to do to keep the lights on. And that's crazy to me, right? And so, you know, we're always, we're, when we go into those, we're very conservative. We, we make sure that we have a healthy uh, amount of cash set aside just in case. You know, you don't want to overdo overdo your distributions to your investors just because you're feeling good, because uh, you never know what can happen, right? So something to uh, something to keep in mind. Brand's asking, uh, what's the general loan look like for new construction? Are they charging ten percent plus interest rates at thirty years, or is it typically a two year loan? Are there ways to get creative with lenders? Who, if you're talking to people that are charging ten percent plus, I would stay. I would walk away, walk very fast. Um, 
you know, t- typically what I'm seeing right now is somewhere in the like six to eight percent range. I know that's not very far off from ten percent, but uh, you know, we, we just got some quotes in the five point eight to six and a half percent range, right? They're typically on a 20-year amortization. If it is a fully amortizing note, typically what you will see on a construction loan is that it is interest only for a certain period of time. We typically try to get that those uh, loans in the interest only uh, time frame between like 18 months and 24 months. Sometimes banks will do like 12 to 15. Uh, you just got to really work with them to try and push that because you don't want to be paying full principal and interest while you're not even delivered yet, right? Um, so they typically won't amortize them. You'll just be paying interest only. Um, so, you know, I mean, 10% interest is not the worst if you're paying interest only. It's just a much higher interest rate and something that you're going to have to, you know, throw into your underwriting to see if it's going to work. Um, but no, 30 years, a 30-year amortization is is very rare in commercial real estate. You can typically achieve that on, you know, super class A properties with with like a life insurance debt policy. Um but usually what you'll see is 20 years and sometimes you'll see 25 right i mean we've got a couple of deals where we have a 25 year amortization that really makes the deals cash flow well but you know again one thing to keep in mind when you go to sell it a 25 year amortization compared to a 20 year amortization you're not going to have as much equity built up in it you're going to be paying more in interest so it just depends you know do you need more cash flow right now or do you want to you know actually build more equity into the property faster Let's see, FBI saying, I know a gentleman who owns a Red Lion and Hilton jointed together in Bellevue, Washington. He's now rezoning all of it to condominiums and apartment high-rises due to the aftermath of COVID. That's one of the major opportunities right now at hotels. A lot of them are still hurting post-pandemic, and they're trying to sell. You know, we're talk- we, we have talked to almost every hotel in Nashville. I think that we've got quite a few. I'd have to get with, you know, Tyler Brock on our team because that's kind of what he specializes in. But, man, he's digging up hotel opportunities left and right for people that want to convert them to apartments or tear them down and do something else. I mean, they're out there. Uh, it just depends on um, just depends on what you're looking to do for them. I mean, I, I wouldn't buy a roadside motel and keep the flag, you know, keep the brand that's like, a you know, a La Quinta Inn or whatever and try and operate that and make money. That doesn't make sense to me. I'm sure there is some money in that. Um, but you can't pay today's prices and really make those deals make sense anymore. Devontae is asking, how do you feel about Raleigh, North Carolina for office? Raleigh's an interesting market. I think it's I think it's very strong for office because you've got a lot of that New York financial industry that's kind of down there as well. I went out there. Raleigh was not very exciting of a market to me. And that may be a you know controversial thing to say. But you know, I always heard, oh, Raleigh is so similar to Nashville, you've got to get out and see it. And I got out there and you know, they've got a their their business district is literally the business district. There's a couple of things downtown. You know, you've got the the stadium down there, the football stadium, which is pretty cool. Um, but outside of that, I, I just kind of found their downtown a little bit boring. We had to get out um, into the adjacent neighborhoods to, to go to the cool bars and restaurants, which is fine, right? Like, I mean, I do that in Nashville. I don't go downtown. I go to the, uh, you know, uh, surrounding areas. Uh, but I just thought it was interesting because, like, at 8 o'clock at night, the downtown was dead. It was weird. Uh, but it was – thriving during the day so yeah i mean i think office space in raleigh would do really well all right let's move into some subgroups these are the popular subgroups i'm not going to go into every single potential subgroup that we could ever talk about but these seem to be the most popular right now first up had to get a drink of water would be medical office we touched on this absolutely in the love it pile 
I think medical office tenants are incredibly strong tenants to have. Banks love them, which means that they're going to give you better interest rates, better terms. Typically, they'll sign 10 plus year deals. They don't like to move. Um, medical office is more expensive to build on the front end, but typically these tenants are willing to pay for them. So it makes a lot of sense for you financially uh, and for the tenants as well, just again, depending on where you are. Medical office in the middle of nowhere, probably not that great, right? But me medical office in a tertiary, secondary, or primary market, I think you do really well. I like medical office a lot. Let's see here. We've got self-storage. Again, you know, uh, like I said, subgroup. Self-storage could be lumped in with industrial. I love self-storage. Um, so it's going to go into the leave-it pile, but I've got a big caveat with that. And here it is. Self-storage cap rates in the last 10 years have compressed so much that it concerns me. I just don't see how those cap rates are going to end up paying off with the amount of interest there is from new developers on building self-storage. So, you know, I mean, look, when back in 2012, 2013, you could buy a self-storage facility at like a 12 or 13 or even, I even saw some that were like 18 caps, right? Now they're down to four, five, and six cap rates. That's crazy to me. Absolutely crazy. Because all it takes is somebody else to come online, build something new, and now you've got a major amount of competition. And let's be real. There's not a whole big barrier of entry to get into self-storage. It's one of the cheapest assets to build. So as long as you've got the land, you can go do it. I mean, it's like $35 a square foot compared to, I think, you know, a new office building is probably in the $175 to $225 a foot range and probably higher. So I would... Uh, I would be careful with self-storage, but I still love it. I think that a lot of people are going to continue to move into apartment complexes that are that are becoming smaller and smaller. So there's going to be a solid opportunity for people that need to place their stuff somewhere until they eventually think that they're going to buy a house. I mean, if you look at default rates on self-storage and COVID, they were the lowest out of every asset class, despite you know the pandemic, because people looked at it and they said, well, it's only 50 bucks a month. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go pick up all my stuff for fifty bucks a month. We'll just leave it there. So, thought that was. I thought that was pretty interesting. Let's see. Speaking of Bellevue, it's also on the up and coming. It's right next to Medina. Bill Gates, Bezos live there, and is becoming the new business hub. Have you been to Bellevue, Washington? I actually haven't. I have been to Seattle, uh, but I haven't spent a lot of time in Bellevue or in Washington in general. I need to get out there. I've actually been talking to my buddies about getting out there, going to North California, Oregon, and Washington be a lot of fun to just see those cities and see kind of how they're see how they're laid out. I mean, I know Portland's weird. I want to see how weird it is, right? What are your thoughts on commercial in Houston, Texas? Ooh, Brandon, that's uh that's it, it's tough. I mean, look, I think Houston is a great city overall uh in terms of commercial real estate. I am not personally a fan because, man, Houston, my dad lived there for eight years when I was growing up, and so I would visit him every summer. And that humidity is brutal. And I'm, and I'm coming from Nashville. Like, Nashville is pretty humid. Houston is somehow worse. The mosquitoes there are insane. Um, so I think that I have a little bit of bias from, from growing up and going out there and just not liking Houston at all. But Houston's big. And one thing that's really interesting to me about Houston – is that you don't really have zoning. You know, you could go build a skyscraper within a neighborhood if you really wanted to. Now, a lot of that doesn't make any sense at all, right? And, and so the market has kind of helped determine that. 
Um, but, you know, look, as long as you're buying in the right areas of Houston, you know, he was kind of in the Rice University area. It was a nice area. I really liked it over there. Um, you know, as, lo as long as you're buying in the right areas, I think you can do something cool. <laughs> Pirates saying medical is also recession proof. It is, right? I mean, it's like it's like owning a liquor store. In good times, people are drinking. In bad times, people are drinking. You know, uh, I mean, your health is something that's just always going to need attention, whether it's a good economy or a bad economy. It doesn't really matter. So, yeah, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Let's see. Ina, how do we know a market is saturated on self-storage? Great question. I would call. Um, I wouldn't call. Well, I guess you could call. Uh, you know, someone like CBRE. Uh, or one of the bigger commercial real estate firms and see if they'll do a market report for you. You can also find these market reports in places. Um, there are some self-storage management companies that will actually do these market reports for you in hopes that they get your business on the management side. That's the best way to do it. You know, we've got a property out in Chattanooga, and that's kind of what we did. We reached out to a, a self-storage consultant to see what their thoughts were on self-storage in the area. Because uh, we looked around and we're like, yeah, it really seems like it is not saturated at all. Like there is a huge need and probably demand for self-storage in this area. But I, I don't like making decisions just based off of my gut feeling 100% of the time, unless it's something that I've been doing for a while. And self-storage is a relatively new asset class for us to be investing in. So I uh, went to these groups. They'll, they'll send you a report. And it basically says, yes, it's saturated. Or no, there's an opportunity here. Here's all the units. Here's the units demand. And so uh, that's kind of how they'll do it. So it's like, hey, there's a thousand units in the area, but there's demand for 1,200 units, right? Okay, well, I can go build 200 more units uh, to fit that market. Kind of how that works. Um, okay, moving on. This is another subgroup that's popular, build to rent. These are neighborhoods. You, you guys have probably heard me talk about it before. Neighborhoods, communities, cul-de-sacs, whatever, where developers are coming in, developing these, building all of the homes, and then never selling them. They are renting them out. And I got to say, leave it. Maybe there's some money there. Uh, you know, cap rates have gotten pushed up. So values have come down on these assets, but there are still big buyers out there for them. Overall, I mean, again, maybe this is an ethical or a moral thing for me. I just don't believe that the home ownership opportunity should be stripped like that. I think that it actually creates a lot of problems for the market when people cannot buy single family homes. These are homes that are getting built. They're taking up land that could house people owning their own properties, and they never hit the market. So can there be money made in them? Of course. Uh, there probably is a good amount of money, but you know, I don't want to be the guy that's stepping on other people's American dream uh, just to make a dollar. Everybody's got their own, uh, their own little quirks, right? That's, that's one of mine. <laughs> Cohen's asking if I can walk y'all through my most creative deal. Uh, Cohen, happy to do it. Let me do this last one, and then we'll dive into that because I think that'd be interesting. Um, would love to, to hear your questions on that. Final one is, and this is not really a subgroup, but it is a type of renovation or development, and that is adaptive reuse. I think adaptive reuse, especially with where interest rates and construction costs are, which makes it very cost prohibitive to go do anything new. Adaptive reuse is going to be incredibly popular in 2023 and is certainly in the love it pile. I think um, you know any opportunity that we can take an existing building and renovate it and bring it back on market, I mean, one, not only is that more green, 
but two, it kind of helps maintain character in neighborhoods, especially if it's an older building that is actually contributing to the character of the neighborhood. Um, but it, it's, uh, it's a lot faster. It's so much, it, it can be cheaper. Sometimes it's more expensive depending on what you're doing, but it's a lot faster than you know having to go develop something completely new, put all these plans together, go ground up. I mean, sometimes with these buildings, you can literally just throw a new HVAC unit on the roof, um, replace the windows, replace the lighting, and, and you're done, right? Uh, and you can do that in a few months. So I, I love adaptive reuse. I think that should definitely be in your love it pile for 2023. So Cohen, getting back to your question, walking you through my most creative deal. Um, I've done a couple of videos on this one before. I still think it probably is our most creative deal. Um, and maybe, maybe you could clarify what you mean by creative because there's several different ways to get creative. Um, of course, there's the fan financing, acquisition, capital raise side of things. Uh, but I'm thinking you, you mean uh, like actually getting doing something creative on a project. Uh, and if I'm wrong, let me know. But we took a six-bay car wash in East Nashville and converted it into five micro restaurants and a bar. And that was an idea that I had during the pandemic. My brokerage was getting a lot of calls from restaurants that uh, they wanted, you know, micro space. They wanted a kitchen with no seating basically. And I kept having to tell them, hey, that doesn't exist in Nashville. It's just not really a thing around here. It is impossible to find that. I'm sorry. You know, I'll keep an eye out in case something comes up. And we'd been working on this project. It was a, a six bay car wash for the previous owner. Um, at the time, my property management company managed Airbnbs, which we don't do anymore. Uh, I could tell you all about that another time, but that's a nightmare. And uh, they had they were planning on doing six Airbnbs in the in the stalls. And it was really interesting because if the building got torn down, Metro Nashville was going to condemn 20 feet of right of way. Well, this is a 0.1 acre lot, very tiny. I mean, if you look up the wash in East Nashville, it is a postage stamp of a lot. We, we have like three parking spots for six, six concepts. So if they condemn 20 feet of right of way, there'd be no, nothing useful there um, at all. And... So we had to work within the existing walls. And the previous owner had looked at office and retail, and it wasn't really exciting to them. Then they were looking at Airbnb, and they were like, well, I guess that's really the only thing we can do here, so let's do that. And so, uh, but then the pandemic hit, right? And so they put that project on pause. And I was driving by one day. I'd just gotten off the phone with another restaurant group telling them, hey, sorry, you know, these micro spaces don't exist. And I looked at the car wash. I was like, man, wouldn't that be weird if, uh, <laughs> if all those bays were little restaurants? And at the time, ghost-facing or, or ghost kitchens uh, were like the big thing, right? Everybody was talking about ghost kitchens because that's how restaurants were kind of solving their issues. I was like, that'd be really interesting if we had like retail-facing ghost kitchens. That'd be pretty cool. So I uh, called my architect. He said, yeah, we can do that. And uh, we're off to the races. I mean, we had that fully leased within two weeks of announcing it. And uh, it's been a very successful project ever since. So the wash was by far my, my most creative project uh, to date, I think. Brandon's asking, how can we help you? Is there a way we can send you deals to potentially partner on? Yeah, love it, man. Look, we're always looking for really good deals. If you find triple net investments, you know, mostly in the southeast and the Sun Belt, you know, we're always willing to look at those if they're, you know, 8%, 10% cap rates or higher, which I know can be tough to find, um, or anything that you find in the Nashville area. Um, or Chattanooga, you know, those are very interesting markets to us. Uh, so we're always looking to look at uh, deals out there. But 
Yeah, there you have it uh, for this week's Commercial Real Estate Investor Podcast. Hope you guys liked this episode of Love It or Leave It. Let me know in the comments what you are going to love this year and what you're going to leave, because that's really going to determine your success in commercial real estate in 2023. I'll see you all next week. Thank you for listening to the Commercial Real Estate Investor Podcast, brought to you by Hamilton, your resource for passive real estate investment opportunities. Visit www.investwithhamilton.com to start building your passive real estate portfolio today.